The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good uh, April morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy. And welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. I'm here flanked by two of my sons, my two older boys, Paul Rudy, certified financial planner, professional Paul Rudy. Paul, good morning and welcome in from Texas. Thank you for having me. Welcome to this weather, huh? And certified financial planner, professional and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Again, both uh, Paul and Dave work with me at Rudy Wealth Management here in town. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. The last couple of shows, we actually had people watching live from Texas, Florida, and for some reason, Vietnam. I have a buddy over there. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's pursuing that, a photography that, career. That could not just have been random. <laughs> Uh, so it's nice to have viewers all over listening. Uh, it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Uh, pretty good idea, actually. This show is really, we're just trying to be educational or more than trying to give you just answers. We're trying to give you the questions to ask your financial advisors so that you can be better informed and more knowledgeable going into your retirement and investment planning issues. Well, guys, uh, lots of clamoring about interest rates. Dr. Fred Gertz, by the way, is traveling today. He'll be back on our next show. So sorry to miss Dr. Fred here. So usually I talk about this stuff with Fred. So I'll do my best Fred impression. (laughs) You're not smart enough. (laughs) Not a chance. (laughs) The yield on 10-year Treasury note hit almost 3% last week. So that's the highest level since 2014. So Interest rates definitely are ticking up. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We've seen a bounce in economic activity, that's for sure. Uh, We've also seen a bounce in inflation rates, which is, of course, why we've seen four or five interest rate increases over the last couple of years. As uh, and I just read an article. I might bring it up. I just pasted it just before I got in here. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office expects that last quarter was probably 3.3 percent GDP. So it looks like we're going to have record GDP at least for many, many years. They that figure all throughout 2018. Uh, the 10-year Treasury note is kind of important, and the reason we talk about it every now and then is it sets the rates for a whole lot of range of business and consumer loans, more importantly probably for a lot of people, or mortgages, but, um, and we'll, we might talk about this in a bit, but some what I, my re- most recent indicator said that the Case-Shiller housing price index was up 6% year over year in February, and uh, it's averaged about 6% over the last, I don't know, for 70 months in a row, it's house prices have increased at an average rate of 6% per year. So looks like, and um, reading that article this morning, it shows there's really no real slowdown in this. The, the real problem is the supply and demand kind of imbalance. There's just the supply is kind of low. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is visit Texas to see that or, or Colorado or any of the big booming states right now. I mean, there is just so much demand and there is not enough supply. And so, yeah, so I think that's when you start thinking, you know, we've had inflation at one and a half percent to two percent per year the last during that, say, the last 70 months when they said that stock uh, house prices nationally have gone up six percent per year. So that shows that there's pretty strong. There's probably an imbalance. Uh, You know, there's a lot of uh, people suggesting when I watch I try not to watch as much TV as I used to. I don't think I'm actually succeeding at that. And even when I was in Captiva, Florida last week. Every now and then I'd see a pundit worrying about higher interest rates. Of course, that's going to wreck the stock market because, and it's true. I mean, it's not true that it will wreck the stock market. We've had higher interest rates and that is a higher discounting mechanism for future earnings. But um, but when you look at inflation uh, picking up and growth growing up uh, uh, or getting stronger, um, I really don't consider the Fed... Reserve, Federal Reserve being too tight, and that's really what this gets down to: is the is the Federal Reserve being too tight? Is it going to take the punch bowl away from the party too early? And to me, I don't know how you guys feel, but until the Fed funds rate gets to about three and a half percent, we're a ways from there right now. The, the thirty year, thirty day Treasury bills, I think, is at two and a quarter, which is quite a bit higher than it was, or is you know, than compared to a year ago, probably a percent and a quarter higher than it was. But uh, 
we've had basically nominal GDP of about three and a half percent. Okay, so that's before inflation. So we've had real GDP growth of about two and inflation growth about one and a half. And to me, it's always my observation has been until the Federal Reserve kind of hikes the overnight lending rates above that nominal GDP rate, you're not really in a tightening mode. And I'm not even sure it's going to be at three and a half percent because, again, we, earnings are expected to grow another 15 to 20 percent going forward over the next year. So combine that, I, I just don't, I, I'm not really, I, I think the Federal Reserve has to go above three and a half percent even we're not we're not even that close to there before it's tightening. So that doesn't, that really doesn't hold water to me as far as this higher interest rates having to lead to um, lower stock market, you know, like it's a given. I think uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors actually had an article on that because I was, I was just reading about it because, you know, people do make that claim as if it's kind of like this direct correlation between interest rates and stock prices. And the takeaway was that there's just really not a strong relationship in general. And like you said, there is a case to be made for why interest Higher interest rates could theoretically have a negative if impact. If everything stayed equal. Exactly. But that's that's an, a huge caveat because not everything is going to stay equal. And so much goes into stock prices in any given day, month, or year that there is no one factor that you can say, if this happens, this is what's going to happen to the stock market. I agree. But you hear this daily with you know throughout the day that, uh-oh, higher interest rates equals lower stock market. And I think it can cause people to make some mistakes. Ben Carlson, who uh, David and I met oh, a couple of weeks ago from the Ritholtz Group, he just published an article and basically it's like, oh, you're about higher interest rates causing lower stock prices. And he went back to December of 1962 and he showed all the starting yield and the ending yields on treasuries over whenever there was higher increase cycles, uh, interest rate cycles. And basically almost all of them, the stock market is substantially higher you know, going into the future by double digits or more, pretty handsome gains. And really, so you really look at the track record, it doesn't hold water. So people shouldn't be trying to reacting at all. Of course, we should never react. We should always be acting uh, on, on fear of higher interest rates. Uh, as I said, U.S. Uh, economic growth kind of continues to get gain strength, guys. Uh, the Federal Reserve just came out with their beige book and indicates that the uh, U.S. remains on track for continued growth. Uh, the one thing they did highlight is the risk of global trade war being the big outlier. So to them, that's the one thing that might derail it a bit. So the overall outlook among business remained positive, uh, though many of the people they surveyed were worried about the tariffs. Of course, that's mainly agriculture, some manufacturing, uh, transportation. Um, they said that there's some evidence that the tax cuts approved in December may have begun filtering through the business spending and investment cycle. Uh, it's been a significant jump in commercial industrial lending. So that's that's pretty solid. That suggests that economic activity is starting to even heat up a little bit more, which now that circles back to that CBO most recent report that says, look, we're going to be in for pretty strong GDP, at least for 2018. Uh, really, the one frustration, and, and I have friends in town and uh, friends out of, in other states that have manufacturing businesses, they talk about frustration with labor shortages, including high-skilled job mainly engineering, information technology, construction, uh, transportation. Uh, overall, wage growth remained only modest. So it's still, if Dr. Fred was here, I'd say, that, you know, I think this seems to me like a Goldilocks scenario. It's not too hot, not too cold. Uh, there's always things to worry about out there. Uh, but it strikes me, uh, I don't know about you guys, but it looks like 2018 still on track. And that doesn't necessarily mean that stock prices are going to go up just because the CBO, so it's, I don't want to send a counter. Uh, right, because there's already the expectation that, that it's going to be great, right? Yeah, there is. These things are always baked into the cake, and, the, and, and it's, uh, you know, the, they're always discounted. The future, what's happened in the past with earnings, what's happened in the past with revenues, um, you know, the market's already over that. They're really looking ahead the next six months, 12 months, and that's ultimately what drives near-term stock prices. So that's kind of a little back up, uh, background on, continued message of feds continuing to uh, raise interest rates i don't see that as a significant problem at least at this point there's been a lot of articles and pundits arguing the market's overvalued i have a hard time getting there with my work uh seems like uh, this would be a pretty good environment for investors even people in cds now uh i seem i'm hearing are earning somewhere around two percent on so depending on how long you go out in maturities 
when you look at 30 day or 90 day treasury bills earning two and a quarter percent uh, that might have been a half a percent you know a year ago so you can see that there's been significant improvement now of course we're gonna have higher inflation probably too so it, it's one of those things everybody's waiting for higher interest rates uh, people to borrow money don't like it but people that have been saving for the last 10 years people in cds and savings accounts and bonds they really kind of lamented the fact that we've had this epic low interest rates and now they're welcoming these higher interest rates with higher interest rates come higher inflation expectations so it really doesn't change the net after tax expected return after inflation return fixed income but it sure feels better getting two or three <laughs> yeah. percent in a cd than two or three tenths of a percent i have to believe that well guys the next thing i want to talk to is uh a blog that I recently wrote about the incredible wealth that the compounds return to the stock market can create over time. Now, that's the, that's the deal. Of course, we always have to be fair and say, we're going to be talking about a look-back period here. And so in no way are we trying to imply that the results of my article or you know, suggest that these things are baked in the cake. But I wrote the article called The Thousand Percent Club. And we'll explain a little bit about that title in a minute. But people can read that blog at rudywealth.com. And for those of you tuning in on Facebook Live, we'll put a link on the comments. I wrote the blog, guys, because short-term fluctuations in the stock market can easily cause people to lose perspective. I mean, one day you seem like you have a good long-term perspective, the next minute it's out the window. It's usually because something happens in, the ne happens in the near term. So I always like to step back and zoom out to try to get my perspective on things. And that was really my what I was trying to get to in this article. So. The title gave away but basically how large returns we're talking about a thousand percent increase in returns and it's i call it the thousand percent club and that thousand percent return it sounds like a lot but anybody with a long-term historical perspective or i might even say memory uh, on stock returns a thousand isn't a thousand percent which is a bunch by the way uh, certainly isn't an unheard of situation we always get focused in the short term and we we obsess as investors, we obsess about something being down 5% or 10% or 15% when over their lifetimes, basically what I've observed is most people will experience a thousand percent rise, a hundredfold increase in the stock market index over their lifetime. And so I was talking to the boys about this and I think son Paul went and did a little bit of research. Um, so my three boys and I and the son-in-law Ryan, and they were wondering, is this something that, you know, I, started, I think they started personalizing it a little bit. Hey, I wonder if that sounds like a lot, Dad. You know, is, could that even be true? So, Paul, you pulled the return numbers for this blog. Uh, so you took your life first. Um, what's when your experience since you were born? Talk a little bit about your experience and how that fits into my blog and this 1,000% club. So I was born in February of 1989, so I am 29 years old. And if you look at the stock market performance over the period from February 1989 to March of 2018, that's the latest full month of data that we have. Sure. The total return over my lifetime, drum roll please, was over 1,000%. It was actually 1,572%. So even 50% more than your title implies. Right. And that, that really surprised me because I would have been surprised by 1,000, quite frankly. But the right. fact that it's way more than that, yeah. it really surprised so me. So it wasn't even a 10-fold increase. It was basically a 15-fold increase. Yep. So the other thing I think is kind of cool about that time frame of, you know, about 30 years is, you know, that's about the time, the amount of time that people work in their job, probably 30 to 40 years. So you start looking at that time frame. That's what you can expect if you're actually, you know, that's the time you're actually investing. And... That's the type of stuff you can expect over your lifetime if you just start investing day one. At your, uh, you know, you get your first job, your first paycheck, you start investing. You don't have to do a lot just to experience, like you said, really fantastic growth of wealth. So you think about a fifteen hundred percent return, which is basically a fifteen. You know, if, if it was worth a dollar, it's it's fifteen dollars today. That's that. Does that include dividends, or is that just the price? Yeah, that's the S and P five hundred with dividends. Okay, so that's the that's the compounded annual growth rate ending dollar value if you had reinvested and that's important to make point out that uh, that but you start thinking about that increase um and if a person was in a working career obviously you, you know you you weren't because you've been in a working career for about seven or eight years but that does measure david basically a 30-year time horizon as a pretty common accumulation period for retirement 
And what about you, Dave? So uh, what's been your experience? Relay your experience because you're younger. Have right. you made the thousand percent club? Yeah. So I was born September 1990. So not honestly too much after Paul, but you'll see it's it's still been really big growth. My total return over my lifetime has been 1,358%. So not quite that 1,500 plus percent that Paul got just by being born, you know, a little less than two years after him. But that's still pretty incredible. What's that roughly compound at on a compounded rate of return basis? Dividends reinvested. Yep. It works out to be 10.2%. And what was yours, Paul? Uh, mine was 10.14%, which is almost exactly the historical average. It's something like 10.12%. So I almost nailed it. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, you know, as we look at the long-term return since the early 1900s, it's somewhere around 10% compounded annual growth rate for the standard Porsche 500 index. But when you dissect all the 30-year periods, just as an aside, guys, because this is the stuff I do for fun. This is how I enjoy myself. I looked at all of the 30-year periods for the S&P 500. Um, and actually, the median return is about 11%. So this would be below the median return if you looked at every 30-year period. So this, this is not above average return. This is actually below what the typical return is over a 30-year period. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. And if you think about it, not from a purely numerical side, but just the time period we lived through, you know, we lived through the lost decade, 2000 to 2009, where the S&P 500 over 10 years went down 9.1% with dividends reinvested. And that made up a good third of our lives. So if you would have told someone that, hey, you're going to have one third of your life, the stock market's going to go nowhere, but you're still over a 30 year period going to receive a 1,500% return. I feel like people would look at you like you were crazy. I think so. And, you know, keep in mind, you mentioned the lost decade, but that lost decade, sure, it was flat, but it encompassed the second and fourth largest bear markets since 1900 or so. So, you know, in the last hundred you know, plus years, that that was really, it's, in fact, it was, I think it might be the worst 10-year period uh, from a compounded negative annual rate of return. And, uh, and still, it's pretty incredible. Uh, that you would have experienced such returns. And, and what we look back in history, we find out that this isn't that unusual. I mean, that's really what it shows. Now, should somebody take away from that then that just give me 30 years and they're, you're going to earn 10% or a thousand plus percent return? Or is this, we're talking about a historical perspective and zooming in? It's just perspective. I would never go out and suggest that someone is going to receive this exact same return again. But once you really start looking at it over longer periods and you start chopping up 30-year periods and comparing them to, say, the 100-year period that we have data for, 30 years is really not usually that different from a historical average of 10%. But when you're building financial plans, you can't necessarily bank on anything, even being average. You have to assume there's a whole range of outcomes. We don't know where the stock market's going to go, and we have to anticipate everything. So you can't build a plan on performance. Okay, and that's it's interesting because we keep talking about this, and a lot of people talk about the long-term compounded rate of the largest companies in the U.S. at 10% a year. And, and Dave, I think you're going to talk about the rule of 72. But, you know, that, that, that type of period is really not it's, – it's really defined by a lot of different uh, experiences for people. But the one that I think surprises clients the most is when I tell them that the worst 30-year period, at least – in the last hundred years or so, was eight point four seven percent a year compounded for the Standard and Poor's five hundred index, and we really start thinking about that. But that that was during nineteen twenty nine through nineteen fifty eight. So you can earn eight and a half percent and have a horrible experience if you're on the retirement side of life and you're decumulating as opposed to accumulating assets. That is, you're spending from your assets. So these long term compounded returns are interest interesting. Um, but there also matters whether you're accumulating, you know, what your ending lifetime result is, whether you're just putting money away for 30 years versus adding to it over a 30-year period and dollar cost averaging in over time, or you're spending from, that's what we talk about, the sequence of returns risk. But it's pretty fascinating. Uh, Dave, that didn't surprise you, though, did it? No, as far as these numbers, it's about what you expect when you start doing the math. And you mentioned the rule of 72, which... Um, is kind of this rule, it's basically saying, you know, if you want to figure out just roughly how often you'd expect your money to double, and again, this is kind of on average, so it doesn't work out this clean in reality, but it's just kind of a good guideline. Like if you want to just say, okay, ballpark, if it's, 
and ex- accept that this is a really broad ballpark, um, you can take basically the expected return in your portfolio and divide 72 by that number. So if you take a 10% return, you would expect your portfolio to double every 7.2 years. On average. On average. So if you look at basically Paul's lifetime, a 29-year period, you basically say, okay, well, it's doubled from, you know, it's, it's gone up 16 times, essentially. Right. It's doubled from 2, then to 4, then to 8, and then that last doubling is going from 8 to 16. Right. So that gets you to that basically 15, 1,600% return. It's about what about what you'd expect, just using that, that rule of thumb. And again, it's not always going to work out as clean as it did during Paul's lifetime, but I think that is kind of, like I said, it's a good rule of thumb that's going to get you somewhere in the ballpark. Well, what's fascinating to me is I've been doing this for 35 years, helping people you know, try to make the best out of the one life they get with the money they have. And we can sit here and talk about a 30-year period. Paul, yours was roughly 30 years. Dave, yours a little bit less. And we look at that compounded annual growth rate, which was really terrific. But I can tell you very few people I've met have actually earned that return during that period. In other words, it sounds easy, but it's not that easy. First of all, Paul, you talked about for both of you that lost decade where the Standard Poor's 500 index, basically if you had $10,000 invested in it in the beginning of 2000, by the end of 2009, you had $9,000. And that assumes you never panicked out along the way, which yeah, is really easy to do. on the front end when the broad market went down 50%, and then in 2008, 2009, when it w- went down almost 60%. And of course, this is always the undoing of investors, is not are the returns there to be earned. Typically, in most people's lives, the returns they will find have been better than they ever imagined. It's just that they didn't get the gold out of the mine. They just they panic so easily. And that's probably the one theme of our firm and our show is, look, these returns historically have been there. It's just that very few people earn the returns of their own investment because there's so many ways to get to get panicked out and to get surprised and to begin following gurus and to lose that faith, patience, and discipline that are required to earn those returns. And that sounds easy, maintaining that faith, patience, and discipline. But you guys can see that, you know, how people, how investors behave even. So we go early into this year in January, everybody's happy by mid-January. You know, two weeks later, everybody's mini panicking a little bit. Not our clients per se, because very, there was virtually no reaction. But just talk about investors in general, the articles you read. I know you guys read a lot like I do. You get a real sense that, gosh, as I said three or four shows ago, when we went above 24,000, everybody was ecstatic. When we went back to 24,000, everybody was, what's wrong? You know, what's, what's going on? Is something, is it broken? So a lot of people just do not tend to stick to their investments. And would you guess the reason for that? We understand the emotional side, but isn't the fundamental reason just kind of going ad lib here? If people had a plan that basically then dictated the portfolio and the allocation, which just become a slave to the plan, do you guys suspect that it's easier to stay with your investment policy, whether if it's attached to a plan as opposed to just out here floating, bobbing like a court? I think so, because if you can actually look at your plan and in spite of recent investment performance, understand that you're still going to be able to do everything that you wanted to do in your financial life, I think that's going to make you more likely to stick with your investments because you really see that the purpose for your money is still fulfilled. And some of it, I think, gets down to your investment philosophy, too. Like, I think if you really internalize the philosophy that we have, which is, look, we can't time when to get in and out of the market. So we're basically left with just buy and hold investing. And that means you're going to go through some scary times, but that's better than getting out at the wrong time or, you know, getting in at the wrong time, basically just jumping in and out at, at inopportune times. Um, what a lot of people do, even if they don't panic out at the bottom, they start chasing performance or they shift, they, you know, it's not a, a wholesale in or out, but they say, oh, maybe I'll increase my equity allocation now because the market's been up a lot. And they don't rationalize it that way. They, they come up with rationale for why they're doing it that sounds good. Right, but it's really they're chasing performance. Yeah, it's an emotional decision, but they backfill with logic. Right. And or the, the other variation of this is picking different mutual funds. Oh, this fund has been doing well. And this fund in my portfolio hasn't been, so I'm going to sell out of this one and I'm going to buy, swap into this new fund that's done really well over the last three, four, five years. And 
those things are more subtle than just panicking completely out, but they can still be extremely destructive to your long-term return. Yeah, almost any way you cut it, all the studies you read, you know, the more we trade as, as investors, the more we, look, I guess it always gets back to you're either a planner or you're a prognosticator. You're either trying to predict things or you're saying, look, we can't predict things, but what we can do is we can create a plan that can be as bulletproof as we can. It's a plan that's going to need adjustment from time to time. And we're there to make those adjustments we know where they're going to be from. And so largely from that extent, it really comes down to your philosophy. Are you a planner or a prognosticator? And, and, and I've said this frequently. Every successful investor I've ever met was plan focused, goal focused and plan driven. And every failed investor, kind of the corollary to that, was market, fo uh, market focused and performance driven. And those, you, you can, those are just two separate things. You're either one or you're the other. Uh, one of them succeeds. It's not a lock, but they have a chance. The people that basically are planning driven, goal focused, uh, it's not a lock, but they have a chance. I don't think people that without a plan have much of a chance at all. I don't know how you guys feel about that. You know, and that brings up something I was thinking about the other day. You know, you always say that words are powerful. I feel like if we called kind of active investing or forecast based investing what it really is, I think people would be less inclined to actually take that approach to investing because we always use the term like forecasts and that sounds sophisticated like I'm right. doing this analysis and forecasting. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is guessing. And I think if we said, oh, I'm guessing that the market's going to do this or I'm guessing that this fund's going to do this, I think people would kind of realize what they're doing with their money and they're investing based on guesses. And sure, you feel like they're educated guesses, but at the end of the day, they're still guesses. I remember one time about 20 years ago, this reminded me of a story. It's a kind of a life story. You use the word guess. I was asked to sit in on a pension meeting um, for a faith-based organization. And their advisors that were managing the pension fund, they, they didn't know who I was. I was sitting there just taking notes and being quiet, which for me, you know, is almost impossible, the being <laughs> quiet part. And, the, the, and these guys represented a brokerage firm. And they kept using the word bet. Well, we were making a bet that this would happen, and then we bet on this stock, and then we bet on... And after the meeting, uh, one of the nuns said, well, Paul, what did you think? I said, well, sister, that guy used the word bet nine times. Now, I don't know how you feel about your constituents that you represent, these participants in this pension fund, but did that not, didn't that bother you a little bit? These people are betting with your money. They admitted it. They used the word bet nine times. And I think that's when the light bulb went off. So you're right. Words are powerful. And really what these professional uh, active managers are trying to do is they're making bets with your money. And all the data shows that it's really a fool's game. It's really a loser's game. And it's one best not to be played. And you guys kind of got immersed in that when you were with Dimensional Fund Advisors. Didn't they basically build their whole story? And I think now they're the fifth or sixth largest mutual fund company. But what's the th what was your biggest takeaway when you guys, you know, after working at Dimensional Fund Advisors, which is basically a group, it's a think tank, I call it, of really smart people, Nobel Prize winners. Wasn't that your biggest takeaway from Dimensional is kind of got immersed in, God, this is such a waste of time. Why do, isn't it even irrelevant to try to outperform things? Yeah, I think sometimes almost to like... Uh, a more intense degree than the vast majority of people to where I, I take things for granted sometimes because people will ask questions. And I'm like, no, it doesn't matter. Like in, in my mind, that's what I'm thinking. Like, look, this doesn't matter. Or we don't know. Like that's the first thing that pops up. Oh, I have no idea. The answer, right. Cause usually people are asking, well, where do you think the market's going to go? Or, you know, it just, it's always forecast stuff. And it's, I always, the first thing that pops into my mind is, oh, I have no idea. And it really doesn't matter that much over the, over the next 30 years. Who cares what the market does the next year? You know? Right. A lot of things are irrelevant, but you have to be careful when you're talking to clients to not be dismissive. I think that's exactly what that's at. what I'm saying. You know, we're we're kind of rigid, especially Dave Paul. He's very <laughs> rigid in his views on this. Um, it, sometimes it can be off putting if we're not careful. Right. And we'll see something is completely irrelevant. And, you know, me, I can be a little blunt and say it a little too quickly, probably. And. So much so that we have to measure our words with clients and really try to soften that up a little bit and say, well, we're, we're not sure that really matters and here's why. And you try, we're always trying to educate people 
Though I don't think you can ever educate people to good behavior. I think sometimes that just comes down to a great advisor that looks you square in the eye during those turning points where you're about to make maybe a big mistake and they say, sometimes it's just because I said so. That's why you don't sell. And so I don't know, we're always trying to educate, but do you guys think people, people have been more educated over the last 35 years from what I can tell. You know, We didn't have the internet when I got into this business. And I haven't seen it result in any better behavior I don't think so. And I think a lot of it is because people have such short-term memories, right? Because think about it. I graduated kind of in the shadows of the Great Recession. You know, people were, even when I was graduating in 2011, still having trouble getting jobs. When you when I entered the financial industry, that was all anyone talked about. And I was convinced, like, this one's different. People are going to remember this one forever. They're going to be scared about it for decades. At this point, is anyone really sitting around talking about 2008? I mean, no, it's only 10, 10 years. years later from a huge, you know, the market got overcut in half and no one really talks about it. At this point, everyone's kind of just thinking about how <laughs> how much further up the market can go. In fact, it's, it's in some ways it's gone the other extreme. I wouldn't call it an extreme yet. People that might have felt like panicking back then are some of the same ones that are saying, why do we own 40% in bonds? That seems like too much. Maybe we should own more in the stocks. That's what's implied in the stock market. And uh, and you're right. That recency bias is one of those characteristics that we carry as investors. That is a little bit of our. Well, maybe not a little bit. Uh, one time, remember one time I, they said, well, what are the two things you think get in the investor's way as far as keep them from being successful, having a lifetime of investment success? And I said, well there's investment behavior and I don't know that there's another one because to me that just seems to be the one you guys are immersed in all the Nobel Prize stuff with the people at Dimensional but it doesn't make better investors it just you know we we try to be better advisors because of it we try to use those tools and pass that knowledge and that perspective on but I find that people left on their own have a difficult time well and just touching on your comment about how there's so much more information available today well, yeah, I completely agree. There's a lot more great information available. There's also a lot more terrible information <laughs> available. And people don't know how to differentiate between the two. Like both people will have, you know, pedigrees from good schools or, right. or credentials or whatever. And they don't know that one person's basically kind of a crackpot, even though he went to a good school and the other person is providing good advice. And again, then it's still kind of like, well, whose opinion do you listen to? And I think sometimes it's almost like the good information gets swamped by the bad information and people are getting hit that much quicker and harder by like the financial media. Anytime the littlest thing happens that's bad in the economy or for a particular company, it's blasted out <laughs> in the news. And, you know, if you think 60, 70 years ago, it probably didn't, you know, well, it, you it had wasn't to, you had to it go wasn't to your broker, prevalent. you know, when I started or just before I started, you had to go to your broker to find out what stocks were doing that day. If you wanted to know before that night, you know, and it, it's just amazing how, how far we've come. But the one thing that has not changed that I can tell one bit is that it hasn't made investors better. It hasn't made them better investors. Uh, all the education, all the knowledge, all the publications, all the research, all the models has not. And I think this gets back to, I think I hit on this a little bit, the last show it's we're we're primal beasts and we still move away from things that cause us pain. And we move towards things that cause us comfort investments that are doing well. The most recent block of time are bringing us comfort. And those three things in our portfolio that maybe perfectly normal behavior, but they're in a decline, are causing us pain. So we start swapping one for the other, usually at the wrong time. And uh, so it's kind of this behavior issue. Um, is a good article. Uh, I mean, I, I, th I enjoyed writing that article. I'm glad, Paul, you did the data behind it to help me test my theory that a oh, thousand percent club, that's not such a big deal. Sounds like it, but it's not. It's attainable. And just to kind of wrap up on this, because we, we actually put out the numbers for all the advisors at Rudy Wealth, and um, Ryan, who's a few years older than I am, is actually above 2,000% return, and um, I'm going to have to put a big past performance as no indicator of future results on sure. everything we've said in the last hour. Um, and then I called it the 1,000% club because, unfortunately, Daniel did not make it. He just hasn't been <laughs> on this earth long enough. He's at about 940% return. He's not in the club. No. And we won't hold him you know, accountable for those returns. 
returns. It's not his fault. <laughs> and again, the whole point of the article was to just, it's a perspective article. It's step back a bit from the noise, turn off the TV, turn off the pundits, just give this time, faith, patience, and discipline, and probably most people are going to be all right. So just wanted to highlight that. And since I had so many children, I figure I might as well price them out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you had a most recent article published Friday on Investopedia inspired by the recent back and forth in the markets. We've had two corrections really since the beginning of the year. And some of the lessons you wrote about that you can learn from, we should always try to learn, right? From if we start finding ourselves paying too much attention to that volatility. I know you shared the article on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's on our website, in the media page on our website, rudywealth.com. And if you're on Facebook uh, listening today or watching and listening, we're gonna put a link on that. So let's start with your first lesson from stock market fluctuation. Uh, there is no reward without risk. That was your number one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes little episodes like this of stock fluctuation can just be a healthy reminder that that's why stocks return higher than bonds. It's because they fluctuate. There's no return without risk. And the reason that stocks have those higher returns is because every now and then they get unpredictable. They bounce around like we've seen lately. Is that a better word to use instead of risk? Unpredictable? I think so. I mean, or people... maybe you might say, and I'm not trying to grade your paper. You could grade mine. <laughs> uh, there is no reward without near-term uncertainty or un un near-term unpredictability. Uh, yeah, that would be, I would say, probably a more thorough way of saying it, because it's it's really, it's not volatility that people are scared of. People aren't scared of the market arbitrarily bouncing around, right? They're, they're scared of the impact that has on their finances and the uncertainty that that bouncing around causes. And that's really, that's when clients say, what, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? And of course, that gets back, always circles back to the financial plan. If we have this period of volatility, negative volatility. Nobody cares if we have volatility going up, right? And you can always circle back to the plan. Look, we talked about this. Volatility is why we have these premium returns. This is just what we're after. We have to always circles back to the plan saying that this is part of the plan. This unpredictability in the near term is required because we need the returns from those investments to make your plan work out. And it gets back to what does this mean to me? Because that's really the ultimate question. And then most of the time, if it's anything halfway normal, which is 90% of any volatility, for if you've done your planning right, the answer is almost always, it doesn't mean anything. It hasn't changed your plan one bit. And then it's kind of a relief. Well, uh, I, I think ahead. Paul mentioned, sorry to interrupt, um, at, kind of at the tail end of that section is it, you kind of the other lesson from that, which is just inherent in the message is, Look, if you're investing in something that has a lot of certainty or it has a guarantee, it's probably guaranteeing mediocrity or guaranteeing very low returns. Like uh, if you look deal. at certificates of deposit, even when they were earning 5%, people dream about that. And of course, in my lifetime, I've seen CDs that earn 16%, 17%. Uh, but even the dreamy 5% CD is going to come with a tax bill for most people of one or one and a half percent, leaving you somewhere around three and a half percent. And trend line inflation historically has been around three percent. So regardless of what the nominal interest rate is, because you have no unpredictability of your return or your or when and how your principal is going to get paid back, you can't expect any material return. The second one, Paul, I think might have been my number one after nine years of a ever increasing stock market, a very powerful bull market, one of the more powerful we've ever had, is the stock market does not go up all the time. Yeah, and I kind of chuckled to myself as I, wrote, as I wrote that. You know, I can't believe I'm even writing this, but you know, truth be told, it has been so long since we've had a major 2008-type decline that people seem to have forgotten that they actually happened. I mean, I graduated, like I said, into the shadows of the 2008 recession, so that kind of left an impact on me. But if you think about the investment careers that my peers have had, you know, they maybe started investing around 2012. They've pretty much only known an uninterrupted bull market. I mean, that'd right. be kind of like going to the casino and just nailing the first slot you ever hit. I mean, you think the they're ATM machines. Happen, right? Yeah, it's the worst. All right. We're going to try Joe. Joe, thanks for listening. How can we help you? Yes, uh, just a quick question uh, review. I guess just want to get your thoughts. I've seen a couple of charts in the past, and it was saying about the same thing as far as on average, how much hey. money. Go ahead, Joe. You're breaking up a little bit. I was going to ask you to maybe call back, but try try again. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it's, 
the chart I was referring to is uh, how much money should you have or put in retirement at certain ages of your life, you know, like 20, 30, 40s, and 50. And the last one was like at 65 was at retirement. They said you should have 10 to 12 times your last year's uh, wages in, right. in retirement. Do you agree? Okay, we'll, we'll take that uh, off the I'm air, Joe, because, and we'll kind of rephrase it. Hopefully we're going to get it right. We got about every other part of your word, but I think we got the gist of it. And if not, call back, please. So the question is, how much should I be saving at different age ranges, or how much should I have saved? He mentioned at age 65, people say you should have, I think, what did he say, 18 times your salary? or He mentioned 12. 12, okay. 12. I would have expected higher than that. So, yeah, yeah 12. Um, I think you should be really wary of any one-size-fits-all benchmark. Um, what you have to understand is that how much you need to save can only be decided by what your goals are. And that can only be determined by a financial plan. And then it's really just a matter of how much do I need to save to fund those goals. Now, if I wanted to give a blanket statement to my peers, I would say save as much as possible, as early as possible to benefit from that compound. those are your most powerful dollars, your early dollars. And it'll save you from, you know, if you save on the front end, you may not have to save as much in your 30s or 40s, and you get to enjoy that a little more. So if you get a head start, that could be hugely powerful. Well, and I've gotten this question a lot lately from some uh, retirement plan participants that we work with. And um, I always bring up the fact that, like as Paul mentioned, especially the stage before you have children is the time, if you can, to try to slam away as much money as you can, because it just gets a lot harder to save money in your 30s and 40s when you have children with just expenses that go along with that and education expenses and everything. So I think Michael Kitsis, he's a blogger in the financial industry. He wrote an article and he basically said, most people's savings is not this linear 10 to 15% that you hear people throw around. It's, hey, usually they can save pretty good in their 20s before uh, they have kids, If they, you know, as long as they have a decent job. Once they have children, it gets really tough, you know, especially in, unless your income really goes up. And then usually that time period, once the kids are out of the house and you're in your peak earning years, people can really save a lot and play a lot of catch up. And I think that is a really good way of looking at things because it takes the pressure off of young parents feeling guilty that they're not able to save a lot or just anyone who's not able to save a lot for whatever reason. The fact of the matter is life is not this perfectly linear controlled thing. Yeah. You're going to have ups and downs. Uh, it's lumpy. Uh, let's face it. That there's There's the you know, there's the ideal answer and then there's real life answer. Right. <clears throat> and I've been doing this obviously longer than you guys have. Uh, that's what I've seen. Uh, most like everything, everything's lumpy. So getting back to Joe, if I'm circling in on retirement and I'm in my fifties, I want to know that by the time, if I'm going to retire in my early sixties, if I had to pick sort of a rule, which is probably a bad idea, I'd say you want of the money that you're going to rely on from your investment portfolio you're gonna need 20 to 25 times that. So if you need, you know, f you know so whatever you need, you best multiply it by that. So in other words, you can spend four to 5% from your investments in a balanced portfolio, okay? You should always talk to your advisor to make sure that, you know, because this is sort of a one size fits all and one size never fits all. But in order to try to give at least some guidelines and fence it in a bit, figuring you can spend from 4% to 5% from your portfolio. Now that includes costs and everything. So this is why we're with a broad brush. Right. But I would think you'd want at least 20, 20 times your spending amount. Right. And I think the key is how much you're going to need from your portfolio because th that can vary tremendously. I mean, if you're someone who has a huge pension, you know, we probably have people from right. the University of Illinois listening to this who are in their traditional defined benefit plan chances are you don't need much of a, a retirement savings in terms of just investment assets. You're going to have a good pension income stream for the rest of your life. Or, you know, lower income people actually need less in terms of investment assets relative to their income because Social Security is going to replace more. So that's where, as Paul's first answer is really the best answer, is there isn't a one-size-fits-all. It depends on your goals. It depends on your financial circumstances, your income streams that you so, have coming So in, in other words, articles like that maybe aren't really have much value at all. You said it, not me. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I, I think, but can you see where people struggle out there? I'm not suggesting Joe struggling. I'm just saying there's a lot of people like Joe that are wondering about that question and you get all kinds of conflicting advice. You would think more like medicine, you would get consistent answers to a particular condition. 
and you can get radically different ideas from article writers, financial advisors, so-called financial advisors, experts. Um, I think that's probably the troubling and the only, the only solution ultimately is you only get to live one life. You only get to live yours. You're the only one with your set of conditions, with your potential social security income streams, pension income streams, if you're fortunate enough to have that. And it can really vary because you could have somebody who's frugal and doesn't need a lot of money to spend from their portfolio. And the same person with the same size portfolio may not make it because they need to rely too much on that portfolio. So the best answer I can give is if you're going to be in a balanced portfolio of somewhere 50 to 60% ownership of the great companies of America and the world, some people call it the stock market and the balanced and high quality fixed income, short-term fixed income, you know, you can spend somewhere between four and 5% depending on the structure of the portfolio and the cost and all that thing. And so that becomes simple math. Just use the inverse of that percentage. And that'll tell you the multiple that you have to have, but it becomes very difficult for people and you can, you can, I can't say it, but like I've, I kid around saying it's like a barber telling you you need a haircut. Anybody that doesn't have a, an excellent financial advisor, I'm not saying it's got to be us. Uh, we're certainly not the only ones out there. Is really probably leaving a lot of stuff on the table. They're, they're going to have much more emotional turmoil than they need. And they may make mistakes they don't need to make, which gets back to emotional turmoil. They may improve their return, but the one thing they'll have is at least they'll have a plan that's pointed somewhere, and it, it gives you that feedback loop of how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing, I'm going to get there. So my best advice is to find a really high-quality financial advisor and, and ride them for life. Um, your third one, Paul, so we'll move on. Stock investors must remain invested at all times. That runs counter to a lot of people on radio shows. I listen to other radio shows in other cities and whatnot, and it seems like the vast majority of them take a contrary approach and would challenge you on that. They think you need to know what's going to happen and you need to adjust your portfolio based on current conditions. You're saying essentially that's nonsensical. Yeah, and I think Dave kind of beat that one up already because ultimately people who are doing that are making guesses. So anyone who says that you need to be out of the market at the right time or, or somehow limit your downside protection when the market's going down, they're in one form or another making some kind of a bet. And that's really difficult to do because you have to get out and then get back in. And the getting back in part is where it gets really problematic, right? Because if you look at the wild swings in the stock market we've had lately, you know, it goes down 3% one day, but then it's up another 3% right. one day. If you miss out on that 3% up day, I mean, just put it in perspective of a 10% annualized return. I mean, you've missed out on 30% of that return in that one day because you right. missed out that giant explosive explosive return. So I think the, the lesson is you really can't predict when to be in and out of the market. So during times of wild swings of volatility, especially is when you need to be committed to your investments and not moving in and out because you need to catch those rebound days. You know, the way I think Ken French put it is, and this was in the height of like 2008, you know, you've stuck around for the risk, stick around for the return. Uh, it's easier said than done. I know. We're talking about uh, Sun Paul, certified financial planner professional, Paul Rudy's uh, most recent article, just a couple of days fresh in, in, in uh, Investopedia about the takeaways from uh, market volatility. This was interesting, and now do you talk, because you guys are younger, is this one of the things you impress upon your friends, friends, your number four? Temporary declines help young investors. Now, they don't think it does. They think it, people in 401k plans, every time we have a perfectly normal bear market, 20, 30% decline, they think it pushes retirement further away. You're, you see it differently than that. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're accumulating stocks over your lifetime and your mission is to accumulate as much as possible, you really shouldn't be sad when those things that you want to buy go on a 30% off sale. I mean, think about anything else. If you're buying t-shirts, if they go off sale for 30% off, you're happy about that. You buy more t-shirts, you don't back up. So my thing is, if you're, if you're going to have this long-term time horizon, if you know this money is going to be invested for 30 years, only temporary declines can only help you because it's just a heaven sent temporary sale on the things that you wanted to buy anyways. And that you need to buy, yep. right? Whoever ends up with the most shares of stock mutual funds gets the best retirement, I always say. So really when we think about volatility, and I know there's another one on there, you know, it almost seems like our message is countercultural. First of all, if you want to earn the premium returns that the great companies of America and the world have historically provided, it's come with premium fluctuation premium unpredictability in the near term. 
And our view is celebrate that unpredictability. It's required ingredient to premium returns. Not that you're not that it's a lock you're going to get them. It's just historically speaking. And again, past performance is no indication of future results. We have to remember that. But that's certainly a takeaway from historical. And the other is if you're not done buying yet, then that actual fluctuation that so many people fear every now and then, as you said, you get a sale, you know, sent from God that's a 50% offer if you're lucky enough. And now you're accumulating twice as many shares of those stock mutual funds than you were five or six months ago. And if who and if it's true what I say, and it is, whoever ends up with the most shares of stock mutual funds gets the best retirement, then those short-term temporary declines are nothing more than a heaven-sent gift uh, to investors that are still accumulating. Yeah, there is, there's a huge opportunity there. And I want to specify, don't sit around and, and wait for a temporary decline to put your money in the market. But... You know, if you get one, if you're lucky enough to have that happen in the time of your life when you're contributing to your investment accounts, you know, maybe increase the contribution to your 401k or something like that. But that's countercultural because <clears throat> when we look at the data and see what people do, they're more apt in a down period in the market, even young folks, uh, to see that something's wrong, it's defective, I got to either stop putting money in, and if I don't do that at a minimum, I got to sell my stock mutual funds while I can. And then you start thinking of how that's, you know, there's, there's fast ways to lose money. There's slow ways to lose money and fail. There's a super fast way to do it. And that is by reacting to what's going on currently and actually by doing something. And, and so it certainly is countercultural to that. Um, again, you can get to that. Uh, I think we're about ready to wrap up here. Guys got about a minute. So you can look at that article on Investopedia. You can go to rudywealth.com and in the media link, it's on our LinkedIn Facebook page. Uh, we appreciate anybody, even if it's one person, who knows, watching us on Facebook. We hope people are enjoying that. That was Paul's idea. Figure we're doing a show anyway. We Should might we well, wave? I yeah, don't know. We'll wave at everybody. <laughs> that was awkward. We don't know what to do with our hands. All right. So anyway, uh, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. Dr. Fred Gertz will be with us. Just remember, folks, it's faith, patience, and discipline. It's been a long time since we've had a significant correction in the stock market could happen anytime who knows but just be emotionally prepared rebalance and you'll be just fine so this is paul rudy for paul rudy's on the money program with david rudy and son paul rudy as well thanks for listening join us for the second and fourth tuesday of each month for paul rudy's on the money Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.